Why base in Austin? What makes Austin appealing to you? I think Austin was the closest thing we could get to kind of the things that are great about California while still staying. <laughs> so, Not the first time I've heard that. We're the, we're the blueberry in the, in the bowl of tomato soup is what people say. <laughs> I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Lot 3649 and Heritage Auctions August 2022 signature event is a 1909S VDB scent. Graded MS67, read by PCGS. I don't expect you to understand any of what that person just said. I didn't either. But she's describing a penny, like an American copper penny. The 1909S VDB scent ranks among the 100 greatest U.S. coins, and the piece is one of the finest out there. Make sure to place your bid accordingly. The winning bid for the coin at the Heritage Auction House was $117,000. Coins are just one of hundreds of categories of alternative investments. Sports memorabilia is another. Wine, jewels. It's a perfect diamond, but it's a round, polished one that is ready to be put in a ring if it wasn't for investment purposes. Donna Auslander is describing a diamond her company Luxus is selling to investors. So fancy it has its own name, Orion. Now, diamonds with their own names are probably more than most of us can afford, so Luxus is offering fractional ownership. It's absolutely an inflation hedge. I think that people really looked at alternative investments in a very different way, starting from the last five years or so. Um, they've been investing in real estate, obviously precious metals. Gold has been around since 17th century Venice. But in the last 10 years, we saw palladium, platinum, rhodium come up. The idea caught the attention of this week's guest, Chris Schonk of ATX Venture Partners. And there's really been just a, a staggering run of demand for anything from timber to shipping containers, art, wine, fractional, racehorses. I mean, you name it. I think people are looking for a generally accepted global store of value that's finite in supply. You know, so that not only can preserve your wealth, but hopefully get some some capital appreciation or even some yield off of it. What got you interested in this? Did Luxus pitch you or did you come hunting for them? 
So we, um, they pitched us, but we did kind of hunt for them. We, we are longstanding alternative assets investors. So, you know, one of my hats is a uh, technology venture capitalist, right? So I'm out there looking for technology that's, you know, disrupting or creating, you know, disrupting and creating new markets, um, or amplifying old legacy markets that just were not technology forward. Um, but I'm a collector uh, of of gems, fossils, minerals. I collect numismatics, which is old money. Um, do that with my son. Several of my LPs and kind of family office friends are also avid collectors of luxury assets, and it it absolutely is a store of value. I'm interested in your uh, your collection of old money. Uh, tell me about what something in your collection that you particularly like. Oh, I've got a lot of the Texas currencies from when we were a country, just because we you know, were headquartered here in Austin. Um, have a lot of stuff from uh, different times in the war. So if you think about it, you'll and especially you being on the the sort of press side, of it, you know, we're all students of history, and money was the original mass media. You know, just like painting the walls in chapels and churches were a way to communicate with the masses. Whatever was on the currency in the pocket of your citizens was what you as a country, as a leader, you know, of that country were trying to communicate. So in there is just a a journey down memory lane of history and what you were trying to communicate, what was happening in that country or that nation at that time, what challenges and opportunities, what was the zeitgeist? at hand because it was the original billboard, right? It was a billboard in your pocket disseminated through all the citizens of your society and reflection to counterparties that you would trade with who are not citizens of yours as, as for what your country and society stood for. So I really like it from a history perspective and it's, it's held up very well from an investment um, as well. You know, I've made a decent amount of money kind of trading up uh, into these things. And it's a great conversation with my my sons and a fun hobby to have together. When we talk about alternative investments, these are different than buying stocks or bonds and they're protected differently, right? I mean, the investor needs to understand that this is different than buying a share of Apple on, on the stock market. That's right. I think that is where the opportunity is too, is bridging that gap. So what what can serve you, what serves the investor about the status quo? Uh, you know, Broader based market distribution, analysts covering it, uh, the underlying security, um, better flow of information. And if you look at the alternative assets, a lot of times le- there's less liquidity. They're more opaque about the timely access to information. And so in that, you should be paid for that risk, right? There's always this, this equilibrium where things change hands and you're, you're trying to either increase the amount of liquidity or increase the amount of information um, and the timeliness of that information to get to a parity to where you can grow the market and more easily transact. And so I think that that's what's happening is you have these these assets that are um, more niche. They're alternative assets. They're less liquid. Um, But through embedded fintech and financial structuring, um, those are becoming in vogue and they're being more commoditized or in early stages of commoditization to kind of grow that market and make them more sellable to a larger base. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. 
Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. You have a surprisingly broad portfolio. Uh, Protopia AI uses machine learning to glean insights out of data. HomePoint is in the mortgage business. Canteen sells vodka, slingshot, aerospace, makes satellites. So you got mortgages, cocktails, rockets. Uh, Are you comfortable in all of those spaces? Well, it's interesting. Um, They don't, on the surface, they might seem very disseparate. Um, What's usually behind them is some intersecting theme. So because we know what's going on on the retail shelf and do a lot of inventory management, consumer packaged goods stuff as angel investors and across my fund. I mean, I've been a longstanding um, consumer packaged good and e-commerce investor. Um, That gives you a lens to look at inventory management. So one of our our big investments is a company called Pensa Systems. You might see see them on the website as well. They are what's happening real time on a retail shelf, in a convenience store, in a warehouse, in a grocery store. But when those founders were pitching that deep technology to us, we knew the problem of empty shelves and what it meant and the challenges there because we had invested in physical products on retail shelves and had to deal with this. And one of our uh, investors owns a large chain of uh, grocery stores. And so we were able to, to triangulate on this problem very acutely and then make that investment. And then on the some of the other stuff, we're generally following founders that we've already worked with before. So on um, you know, Slingshot Aerospace, that's you know my third time to work with that same founder. In fact, we had a company that we took public together back when I was a founder. So we're generally, you know, we're we're not looking for something that we don't understand and a team we don't know. Uh, ideally, you have both. It's something you know, have a thesis on, have um, an information experience advantage, and you're not taking people risk. You're, you're already working with a team or investing in a team you've worked with historically. So that's why it might seem a little bit, um, you know, heterogeneous out there is that we're in companies that are changing the way things are done with founders we've already worked with that are going to bring it back to one of our our kind of core themes, I guess you could say. You've worked in consumer goods for a long time. What was your favorite investment or what was your favorite consumer good? They may not be the same thing. Oh my gosh. Well, there was a, um, you may have had this before when the paleo movement was just kind of starting. So that, that dietary movement, you know, to eat, uh, less carbs, you know, more like a caveman, if you will, there was a category that was not determined yet. There was kind of jerky, you know, meat products. And then there were all the granola bars and all the health bars and the snack bars and things like that. And there was a company called Epic, E-P-I-C, 
that I invested in as a kind of to try and ride the, the thesis of, hey, this, this paleo thing is real. CrossFit is real. People are trying to bring down carb intake, but there's no place I can go in the snack aisle and get something besides just jerky. And they um, ended up selling that business. It was a nice exit and it defined this whole category of protein-based snackable bars in a world that was generally very carb heavy. So that, that was a fun one because it was a fun brand. It was very timely. And I would, you know, snowboard, hike, go around and go places. And you start to see, you know, Epic bars or people see an Epic sticker on your helmet on while you're mountain biking and conversation starts. So I think that's the fun thing about consumer facing things is that you get to talk about it and it creates a conversation versus if you're investing in, you know, enterprise deep tech, that isn't mm-hmm. necessarily a dinner table conversation, right? <laughs> right. And and your mom and dad also understand what it is you just invested in. You can pull it out of your pocket. Which one of your investments uh, do you think is best positioned in these economically uncertain times? We have a couple that are in supply chain visibility. So I would tell you right now that no one cared about supply chain. It wasn't a, a buzzword. I mean, you remember you've been talking to smart people and, and a thought leader for a long time here. No one cared about that. And I think, you know, us being in the mid-continent, you know, here in Texas, right? You're not, we're not in San Francisco. We're not in New York. You have to make things and move them, right? It's a big asset intensive, large piece of land with, you know, huge ports and energy and just hard assets everywhere. And so for us, the making and moving of things is what we do. So investing in technology that better helps you make and move things was just pure logic. And so we've been investing in that for over a decade. And then COVID happened. And then geopolitical anti-China stuff happened. And that we are riding this wave of nearshoring, reshoring, supply chain visibility very hard. And I think that is not slowing down. For all the buzz that's been had over the past three years, I would tell you that we're less than 10% penetrated towards a a self-actualized and efficient supply chain. So there's still a lot of room to run there. You're a small firm. You recently hired Jeff Thompson. Uh, He's a former Army officer. Uh, You're a a former Army sergeant. Was his experience uh, part of your, a factor in your hiring decision? Absolutely. We, we, We hire folks that have been operators. So if you look across our whole company, one thing that, uh, is interesting as a firm is generally venture capital is a, is a small asset class and it's a drop in the bucket of the global things that one could invest in right we're a subset of private equity which is a subset of alts or illiquids right which is a subset of what's available and there the we're overweight the whole industry is overweight smart people who can financially engineer and are very um fluent transactionally right? Like that's table stakes, you know, being in Mensa and being able to craft transaction and model things out, be a financial investor, that's table stakes. What, what's the irony is that early stage. So in, in the, you know, standing up companies, getting to that first couple million of revenue, that's not a spectator hands-on sport. You know, you can't just hand a bunch of hedge fund managers, um, some startup companies and cross your fingers, right? You need to to know how to operate. And so our thesis was, is that if you're going to help launch companies with founders, being a founder gives you an an edge, just like if you're going to play a sport and coach a sport, it's better to have played a sport, right? So I'll kind of maybe have to edit some of this out. But if you think about it, 
what coach out there has ever been successful in any athletics that didn't play the underlying sport? Yet most venture capitalists have never actually built a company. They're financial investors. So there's irony in that. So when we look to build our firm, we look for people that had all the financial acumen and chops. You know, we're in, you know, hyper intelligent team Mensa individuals, but they'd actually built teams and launched products. They were technical. They could code and manage the numbers. And so finding people that are operators um, who are also financial investors has been something we've been on a, a quest to do. And I believe that the military and the ability to be a team player and get things done as a team, especially in a world where we're trying to invest in technology, often at the demise of people that were there previously, right? Like automation is literally that you're. Yes. And so the irony is that at the end of the day, it all lands back on humans for as much deep AI as we're doing. And we're, and we're definitely in that space pretty heavily with some great investments. You know, people still need to get things done. They need to work together. And for all the polarization and this versus that out there, you know, it's nice to have people that know how to work with folks that, think differently than they are, look differently than they do, might fly a different flag, you know, are heterogeneous. And the military is a great proving ground to find individuals who who innately know how to get things done with other people. Speaking of, uh, you know, uh, differences, we'll call it we'll call it rivalries. I'm in California. You're at ATX, which uh, is short for uh, Austin. Why, why base in Austin? What makes Austin appealing to you? I think Austin was the closest thing we could get to kind of the things that are great about California while still staying. <laughs> so, Not the first time I've heard that. We're the, we're the blueberry in the, in the bowl of tomato soup is what people say, right? So, um, and I think that just resonates with what's happening here. I mean, if you look at it, it's the state capital, right? So there's the ability to kind of help craft with some idea legislation. Uh, it's also a big university town. And so with that, with that university college dynamic comes asking why, being a little bit curious and possibly even recalcitrant, right? And so those are beautiful things. And that's, that's a lot of what made the Bay Area great back in the day is it was this haven for people that were willing to break eggs to make an omelet and think differently and, and be progressive, right? Um, so it has those elements, but it's all wrapped in this... Um, very pro-business, you know, light government, um, tax-friendly sort of umbrella that makes it a very interesting place to be right now to launch technology companies and be an investor. So I think we're not the only ones here doing this, but we were ahead of sort of the influx. And it's nice to be part of the incumbent regime that's seen the past, knows the present, understands the future a little bit better as a local. So, Yeah. And then circling back to Luxus, uh, this company, what, what do you hope for this company? Were we to meet back here in a year, two years, where would you expect it to be? So across multiple assets, so you can't boil the ocean. So there, um, Luxus is starting with gems and jewelry, you know, truly collectible museum quality stuff. Very, very rare, absolutely finite in supply and high in demand. So you think about something that was worn by Marie Antoinette. Or was this was this ruby once upon a time in King Solomon's, 
you know, actual vault. Like these are the the stories and the conversation and, and frankly, the community that come with the asset class that you don't get in a laddered bond fund or discussing your timber portfolio, right? Is because it's this intersection of luxury, ownership, collectibles, fashion, and an underlying asset class. It has things above and beyond just being an investment. There's a community and a conversation around it that make it dynamic and more attractive than not having those attributes. And so if we came back here in a year, I think Luxus, and hence the name Luxus, is to be the thought leader and the market maker for these very rare, highly curated groups of investor collectors across the whole luxury category, which is actually on fire for as much demise is happening in the macro world right now. If you look at art sales, racehorses, yachts, there is the rich are absolutely getting richer and the amount of money at the 1% of the 1%, the velocity um, and the increase in, in pricing around these luxury assets is, is off the charts. Chris Schunk of ATX Venture Partners. Next week on Sand Hill Road. I think the ethos of Californians has always been unique and distinct and the worldly view from people in California just always amazes me how educated and knowledgeable people are. Sand Hill Road is produced by Sean Myers under the leadership of Sarah Bueno and Stephanie Adruni. For more interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. That's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes and at PressHereTV.com.